Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25 to verse 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they weep, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious, then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. Be seated. In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, because of the importance of the subject matter, as, as really is all the Word of God, and the relevancy of this to everyday life, this is part one of a two-part series dealing with not being anxious about our daily needs or not being anxious concerning anything. In the previous section, we just took a look last week at Jesus' warning, I guess having divided loyalties. We cannot have two masters. By trying to have two masters, we'll either serve uh, one or the other, but you can't serve both at the same time. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. In the previous section, Jesus warned of the danger of hoarding our wealth, using it for the purpose upon ourselves, thinking only of ourselves. And in this section, he's dealing with worrying about those things. Many people may not be guilty about hoarding up wealth. However, who hasn't been guilty at some point of worrying about whether or not things are going to work out for us, whether all of our provisions are going to be given to us? We may not make idols out of our wealth, but we can oftentimes lose sleep over whether or not our needs are going to be met. So Jesus deals with all facets of this, this area. The great adversary, what does he do? The, the evil one, the devil. He is so cunning, he is so devious in all that he seeks to do to undermine everything that is true of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of the form that it takes, what Satan wants to do, he wants us not to trust God. Either not wanting us to trust God, trust ourselves, hoard up things for ourselves, or 
be so concerned about maintaining what we have that we worry about it. Regardless of whether we're hoarding our wealth or we're worrying about daily things, what Jesus says, and it's very clear at the end of this section, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what life is about. It's all about glorifying Jesus. It's all about service in the kingdom. Now, depending on your translation that you may have, here in verse 25, the, the King James says, don't take any thought regarding your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall clothe yourselves. The New American Standard has it, do not be anxious. And really, in this case, the context is clear that he is talking about not being anxious about the things that are of necessity for us. It's definitely not teaching us that we don't think about these things. That's not what he's referring to. In fact, the command of Jesus is that we do take careful thought of. Because he is commanding us to take a look at the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and how God takes care of them. He is telling us to do that. So he is telling us to think. But what he's telling us is, don't worry about it. A good passage that conveys a very similar point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 6 is the story of Mary and Martha and a <clears throat> when they had guests at their house. Turn with me to, to Luke chapter 10. And look at verses 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary Really only one, for Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. So in this story, Martha is very concerned over the fact that her sister is not helping her with the preparations for those who had come to their house. She wants Jesus to rebuke her sister and make her help. But mind you, Jesus understood Martha's heart and said, Martha, you are so concerned and you worry about so many things. You are distracted by so many things. And he says, there are, only, there are a few things that are necessary, only a few things. In fact, he says, only one. And Mary is concerned about that one thing, of sitting at the Master's feet and learning of the ways of the Lord. That is the most important thing. 
And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus will end this whole section by saying, all these particular needs that we have in life for his people will be supplied, but our goal is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is what we must be concerned about. That's what Mary was concerned about. And that's why Jesus actually told Martha, you're not seeking the one thing that is of utmost importance, and that is learning of the ways of the Lord. My question oftentimes comes to mind is this. When Jesus says not to worry that about these things, about our, our various needs, is he telling us not to plan at all for the future? Because that would be what some people might think. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing. And so some people will say, well, then, we're called to live by faith, and uh, we simply just pray about things, and we don't need to do anything. We just sit and wait for God just to drop everything into our lap. Now, is that what Jesus said? Is that what he implied? Well, no. What that, that indication, that complaint, is a misguided understanding of faith and of prayer. We must have faith. We must pray. And these two things of having faith and prayer do not negate human responsibility in the least. So when Jesus says that the birds, they do not sow, and neither do they uh, reap, and, and they don't gather into barns, Jesus didn't say that the birds don't do anything. Have you ever watched any birds? They're always busy. Always busy about finding their food. Even though they don't reap and they don't sow. So the point here is, Jesus is saying, God takes care of the birds. It doesn't negate responsibility, but God takes care of them, and in their search for food, he allows them to find their food. Jesus doesn't condemn farmers for plowing. He doesn't condemn them for the harvest that they will engage in, nor in storing up in barns. He doesn't condemn that. Paul confirms that, does he not, in 1 Thessalonians, when he says, Anybody who is unwilling to work, neither shall he eat, should eat. So the command not to worry about these things, or the fact that to look to the birds as an example doesn't mean inactivity. It just seems meaning trusting that God will provide. One only has to read the Proverbs. The Proverbs, do you not, to find out that God speaks to the slugger and he says, Go look at the ant slugger and learn of her ways. The Proverbs talks about how the ants prepare their food in summer. What are they doing? They prepare their food in summer for the winter. They are working ahead. And, and so they are gathering. And so the scripture, the Proverbs, tells us to be planning, 
to look ahead. The whole point here is, though, in planning and looking ahead, you don't worry about it. That's the point. God will take care of it for his people. A good companion passage to this whole section uh, here in Matthew is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Let's turn with me to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rather than worrying about all the things in life, Jesus tells us, then you pray for them. You pray about them. And, and you pray about them, and notice what he says here. What is the attitude that you and I are supposed to have? Thanksgiving. You pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, why be thankful? You're thankful because of the confidence that you will have that God will give you what you need. So when you're praying for the necessities of life, we are praying with thankfulness because you know or you should know that God will provide. You have confidence that God will be true to his promises. You have faith in his promises. That's why you're thankful when you pray. You see, faith in his promises and a spirit of thankfulness that our God provides us, you know what that does? It gives us peace. It says you pray about it, you're thankful about it, and then it says the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The result of trusting in God, not being anxious, and having an attitude of thanksgiving, knowing that He's going to provide the promises that He's made towards you, it gives you peace. Now, what's the opposite of peace? Worrying, right? If you worry, you don't have peace, obviously. So the solution to worrying is to understand that God will take care of you, and you're thankful for it, and you trust Him. And then He will give you the peace. Now, if, we, if the peace is not there, you can just automatically back up and say, well, I still don't have the peace. To which I say, you really don't have the faith, then do you? You really don't believe the promises, do you? You're not really thankful that he's going to meet the promises, do you? Because if you did, you'd have the peace. And if you don't have the peace, you're not trusting. It's that simple. So in this regard, 
The opposite of anxiety is faith. It is peace. And the one who is trusting God, the one who is thankful, believing that God will provide all of their provisions, is a person who does not have inner turmoil. In other words, they're not anxious. Now, there is something, um, so when Jesus says, don't worry about your food, your drink, and your clothing, it really is an exhortation about all things in life. It's not just food and clothing. And uh, clothing and drink, it's obviously meant to encompass everything about our existence. That's what it's about. Now, there is something that may seemingly be contradictory here when he says, don't worry about your daily needs. Because he says, is not life more than food? And is not the body more than clothing? To which somebody may say, well, if I don't have food, I'd starve to death. And if I don't have shelter, I'd perish. So that doesn't make any sense. You know, what What did Jesus mean then when he said this? That the life, don't be anxious about these necessities, because life is more than food. And life is more than clothing. So what did he mean? Well, <clears throat> here's what he's driving at. And we've got to ask ourselves this very important question. How, life, how did we get here? Well, life is a gift of God. Where did life originate? Who is the sustainer of life? These are the questions we ask ourselves. And then we realize that life is a gift of God in its very essence. Man doesn't give life to himself, and he surely didn't. didn't life didn't evolve over millions of years by chance or God intervening and using it in some way. It's insulting to God. God is the giver of life. He is the one who sustains us on a daily basis. Turn with me over to Psalm 139. And let's look at verses 13 through 18. For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! 
If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. This is a, an amazing passage that teaches us quite clearly that life is from God himself. And you know what is so shameful, what is so sad? Those that are closest to looking at these things, scientists, ought to know better. They ought to be driven to their knees. And it's only because of the unbelievers that do not appreciate it. When I was in college, when I was a pre-med student, I took a class on embryology. And it is a fascinating thing when you realize how life starts in a microscopic cell. Right there in this fertilized cell is everything that human being is destined to be. And how quickly everything begins to multiply, differentiate. How do and you have all these differing kind of cells, heart cells, lung cells, brain cells, kidney cells, all of these things. They all are different. They all are unique. How do they know where to go to develop properly? How do they know that? And, you know, if they don't go to the right place at the precise time, the human being doesn't form correctly. It's an amazing thing that there are no... Uh, monstrosities that are born. That's the amazing thing is that we that life is so uniform in many respects. And how in nine months from a single cell you have a human being. Life is given to us by God. And notice here it says that God had ordained. And he's talking about those who are his people now. God loves his people. He's he has precious thoughts towards his people. And notice here it says, before we even were born, God had already ordained the days that were for us, when as yet there was not one day. It was already determined. And it says, how precious are your thoughts to us, O God. How vast is the sum of them. They outnumber the sand on the seashore. That's how vast uh, the love of God is towards his people. So the point what Jesus is making is, life is much more than food. Life itself. The body is worth more than all. And so he says, you think God who has given you life, do you think that God who has given you a body, you think God's going to forget about you? He didn't forget about you when he formed you in the womb. He didn't forget about you when he planned out your life and all those days. He didn't forget about you then. He was thinking about you all the time. And so what we see here is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God has given the gift of life, he will sustain it if he's giving you that life. That's what you can bake on. Humans are expected to work. We are expected to harvest and gather into barns. We see that command in Scripture. And in doing that, Jesus says, don't worry about it. So I'm exhorted never to think this. I should never have this thought. Well, the Lord's going to abandon me. 
I'm going to be starving. I'm going to be homeless. We do not, as Christians, have any right to think that way. Turn with me to turn over to Psalm 37. Look at verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. God promises to take care of the righteous. When he talks about the righteous' seed not being uh, neither begging bread, that's not an automatic thing. It's assuming that the descendants are the righteous as well. And so we see here that God says to all those who are his, who are seeking his face, the psalmist says, I've never seen them ever forsaken. I've never seen them begging bread. God provides for them. You see, God isn't simply our creator. He's not just our sustainer. Jesus said he is our what? Our heavenly father. God values us more than any other creature on earth. Now, I know there are others that might not like that. There are those who think, and it's uh, appalling, that there are some that think and who believe in the whole process of evolution. It says, perhaps some of us think too highly of ourselves to have this dignity about ourselves. Well, you know what? Psalm 8 says, What is man that thou takes mind of him? You created man a little lower than God. So what kind of image should I have uh, of, of God's relationship to me? Yes, I am of great value. And that's why Jesus says, you are worth more than a bird. You're worth more than the lilies of the field. You're made... In his, my image, you are the apex of creation. And not just the fact that you're the apex of creation, he says, but I have called you by my name. I have redeemed you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am your heavenly Father. I won't forsake you. See, there's a wonderful expression of God's provision Seen over here in Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us All things. We have been redeemed in Christ. And He, the Father, our Heavenly Father, who sent His only begotten Son into this world, has come come and delivered us. And if God, our Heavenly Father, did not spare His Son, but delivered Him up for us, how will He not give us all things? Of course he'll give us all things. 
If God has given the Son to redeem us, He will give us everything that we need. Yes, the birds still hunt for their food, but God gives them success in hunting for their food. And yes, God will give us whatever we need in service to Him. Our bodies are a gift from God. And since He's made us with bodies, He will provide for us. There should never be a day that we ever think that God's not going to take care of us as His people. If He has created us, He will sustain us, and he will sustain us by his great almighty power. He will carry through for us every time. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. And look at verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He's talking about his covenant people here. Those that whom he is in covenant with, whom he is going to redeem. And he says, I know everything that I have planned for you. My purpose for you is to give you a future and a hope. That's my plan for you. And after all, what does Romans 8.28 say? It says, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. They all work together for good. And so we can be assured of several things. What should we be assured of? One, he loves us. If he has sent the Son of God to be our Redeemer, he has loved us. He loves us, and he has a plan for us. That's what we can be certain of. And this is what has always sustained great people of the Scriptures. That God brought them into existence, and that he has a purpose for them, and he would use them. Just take, for example though you might not have realized it at the outset of his life, and for a time, Saul of Tarsus. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Here was the great uh, persecutor of the church, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says, zealous about the law to a greater degree than all of his fellow countrymen. There was none as zealous for the Jewish traditions as Saul of Tarsus. And then he had his encounter with Jesus. Take a look at Galatians 1, verses 14 through 16. If I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, becoming more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, but when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Here the great persecutor of the church says, God had always intended to save him. Because he says, I was set apart from my mother's womb 
to be a preacher of the gospel, just like Jeremiah was, by the way. Who would have thought about it? If you looked at his life and his Jewish uh, traditions and his way of life and what he was doing against the church, you never would have thought that this was in the plan of God, would you? But it was. It was always in the plan of God. Because he says, from my mother's womb, I was set apart. That reminds us of that passage I looked at earlier. Psalm 139. The days that I have ordained for you when as yet there was not one of them. God was going to save Saul of Tarsus. And God was going to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. Take a look at Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. In that conversion experience of, of Saul of Tarsus. This is what God said uh, to Ananias, whom Saul was going to, was supposed to go to to receive back his sight from having been blinded by his encounter with Jesus. God speaks to Ananias, saying with reference to Saul, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. God says in that Jeremiah passage, I know the plans that I have for you to give you a future and a hope. Paul says, I mean, God says to Saul, I know the plans I have for you. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will make you the apostle to the Gentile. What Jesus is trying to, seeking to communicate to us in that Matthew passage is that we are not to be anxious about anything because life is more than food. The body, life is more than anything else. And so in this reference that God is concerned about us, <clears throat> the Lord is seeking to convey to us how we should seek to live our lives in trust, in confidence, with thanksgiving, and with peace. We're not to be anxious about anything. You know I'm preaching this sermon to myself as much as I am to you. You do know that, don't you? Don't be anxious about anything. So many people live their lives consumed with all the things of this world. How to get them, how to protect them. And this is a misplaced priority. We're not to live our lives for ourselves, but we live our lives for God's glory. What was the point in the previous section we looked at last week? We looked at the, the rich fool in Luke 12. What was the problem? He was gathering up things. He was very wealthy. He was gathering them in barns. I'll tear down the barns. I'll build bigger barns. And God says, you fool, you've got all these plans when you don't realize I'm going to kill you tonight. And then whose, whose things are these going to be? And it says, and Jesus says, so is the man who is not rich towards God. The man was living for himself. He was laying up treasures on earth for himself and not for God. We are not in this world to live for ourselves. Brethren, that, this is the one thing that must come home to roost with us in a very powerful way. 
you have to come to realize, and as a professing Christian, the scripture says, you have been bought with a price. And what was the price? The blood of Jesus, the scripture says. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. He gave everything for you to redeem you. That's what it took. It took his shed blood to redeem you. You and I would not have been redeemed without that shed blood. That is the cost that it took. You and I don't belong to ourselves. The scripture makes this plain in many places, several places. We are not our own, 1 Corinthians says. We have been bought with a price. Life is more than food. Yes, God's giving you a life. He's giving you a body. But He's given us that life and that body for service to Him. When Jesus said, Are you not worth more than the birds of the air? He is telling us that we are vastly superior to any other of God's creation. We are that apex of creation. Jesus mentions in verse 27 of our text a very important thing. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? In other words, can you increase your life by worrying? Well, you might decrease it, but you're not going to increase it. You know, despite all of our advances in so many differing areas, God is still the one who has numbered our days. It says he's numbered the hairs on our head. Job 14, verse 5 says it like this. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set that he cannot pass. God has determined how long you're going to live. To the very second. And how that works out with man's accountability, I don't know. But the scripture is very clear. I have planned the end from the beginning. I have set the parameters for your life that you can't go beyond. And so, therefore, we must realize that Jesus tells us, you know, in worrying, since God has planned out everything for us in advance, What good is worrying about it? Nothing. Nothing is ever gained in worrying about whether God's going to provide for our provisions. It doesn't accomplish anything. We found that out by personal experience, have we not? Does anything gained by having sleepless nights worrying about what's going to happen to us? Where are we going to have the money to pay for something that's broken down? Is, is it going to help us out? No, it's not going to help us out, worrying about it. He knows that you need all these things of, of life, and he'll take care of it. If God so clothes the lilies of the field in a way that Solomon and all his wealth could not array himself with his fine linen in a way that God does, will he not take care of us? See, the scripture does teach us that life is like the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. 
If you were to go to exit 132 where we live, off of Mount Hope Church Road, for the last several weeks there's this whole area, I don't know what these flowers are, that are purple and white. And about uh, four or five days ago they were at their apex. Brilliant. But I noticed three days later it was gone. Now they're still there, but they're not as brilliant as they were. Three days. Three days, and they've lost all their luster. And probably within several weeks, I don't know the longevity of these. They'll be gone. If God clothes the flowers with such beautiful array, but they are gone soon and thrown into the furnace, he says, will he not much more do for you, O ye of little faith? See, he puts that on there. Look at verse 30. If God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you? O men of little faith, where's your faith? What did Jesus mean by little faith? Well, for one thing, He says these flowers that look are so beautiful for a short period of time and are burned up in a furnace, they are temporal. You and I are not temporal. We are created for eternity. We are destined. We are immortal beings destined for immortality. After this life, it just takes on a different dimension. But our souls are immortal. And as Christians, we will have a resurrected body united with that soul that's immortal, and then we will be immortal. We are different. We are created for eternity. Now, do you think that God, who has created us for eternity, is going to neglect us in this phase of our existence? Hardly. That's why Jesus says, Oh, ye of little faith. Your destiny is so great, if it's that wonderful, he'll take care of you in this phase. You know, this whole idea here of little faith, it's not so much the fact that we need to increase our faith as much as it is that we need to exercise our faith. That's what we need to do. You know, that point was so, one of the best ways that was brought out in the scripture is with was when Jesus was with his disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just preached. He was tired. He was in the stern of the boat. He was asleep. And as the way it can be on the Sea of Galilee, storms can suddenly come up on the Sea of Galilee. And a vicious storm had come up so great that water was coming in the boat. The disciples all went in the back and said, Lord, they woke Jesus up. Do you not care, Jesus, that we are about to perish? So Jesus gets up, calms the storm immediately, and then rebukes the disciples by saying, O ye of little faith, where is your faith? You had me, God, in the back of your boat. Where is your faith? You think I was going to let you perish? No. Trust me. 
See, the sooner that we realize that faith and, and, and anxiety are opposites, the better off we'll be. And that's what it is. Either you, you, we are anxious or we are men and women of faith. We'll either worry about things or we're going to have faith that it all worked out. Now, how is faith defined in the Scriptures again? You know the passage. But turn to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Let's remind ourselves. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And then we have that, as some call it, Hebrews 11, dubbed in certain respects as the hall of fame, of faith, of all those great figures in the scripture who lived by faith. Faith is an assurance, a certainty of things that you hope for. You are certain that what you hope for will come to pass in God's due time. And if God is going to take care of us today, he'll take care of us tomorrow. Now, faith is not in ourselves. Faith is not in our abilities as such. Faith is not in, in the amount of how much we have accumulated and that we stored and set aside that we can fall back on. Faith that we have is faith in God and his promises. And therefore, that's why it says, it is faith is a conviction of things not seen. We haven't seen God's provision for tomorrow. We haven't seen it. Because tomorrow's not here yet. But we have a conviction that it will be provided for. Why? Because we live by faith. And what does faith cling to? A promise from God. That's what faith clings to. The promises of God. And so in this regard, we know that all things will work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why can I have confidence in that? Because the Bible says so. It says to his children, they all do, it will all work out for good, even though we may not think there's any good that will ever come out of it. I don't know what the good is going to be oftentimes. I have no idea. I don't know what the future is exactly, but I do know this. He loves us. He will take care of us. He will use us if we seek his face. Jesus loves us. This I know. How do I know this? I do know his faithfulness is new every morning as the scripture says. I know this. His promises are unfailing. I do know this. And that's what I trust. I'm not, I'm not to worry about the future. You're not to worry about the future. God is the one who inhabits eternity. And I know the one who has ordained the end from the beginning. You know that one as well. Brother, this is all we need to know. Right? That's all you need to know. 
You need to know the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand, who loves you with an everlasting love, who if he did not spare his son for your sake, he will take care of everything that you have. Life is more than food. He knows you need the food. He knows you're a creature, a bodily creature who needs food. He will take care of you. He will sustain you. Why didn't Israel enter the, the promised land under Moses? Because they looked at the circumstances rather than trust in a promise from God. <clears throat> there was only two that trusted in God, Joshua and Caleb. Only two of the twelve spies trusted the Lord. They saw the same things that the other ten spies saw. They saw the giants. They saw the fortified cities. They saw all these things. But as Joshua says, God's given us a promise, so let's go take it. But they wouldn't. And what did they do? They became Israel, listened to the ten spies, listened to the bad report, and it says they cried all night long. They had a big pity party. They were anxious, thinking, if we try to go into the land, the giants will kill us. And so they were anxious, and they refused to obey God. And as a result, a whole generation perished, except for those under 20 years of age, and with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who did believe in the promises of God. Faith or anxiety, which one is it going to be? You'll live by faith, or you're going to be anxious. We have a choice. You either believe God's promises. Or doubt God's promises. And if you doubt God's promises, you're not going to have peace. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You will have peace when you have faith in the promises of God. And when you pray and you don't have it yet, but you pray with thanksgiving, you're living by faith. That's the answer. Let us pray. Lord, be with us and teach us your ways. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.